So it's a blessing to be here with God's people again this morning, this local church. I want to thank Ken for preaching last Sunday. Uh, it's a blessing to have elders here who really are eager to bring the word of God to his people. And that is something that I have most certainly seen with the elders here at Four Corners, that there is a desire in, in any way that they can, whenever possible, to share the word, whether it's in a small group, Bible study kind of context, or, or even from, from the pulpit here preaching. I was away last week at a conference. It was a, a pastor's conference called the Shepherd's Conference in Los Angeles at uh, John MacArthur's church, Grace Community Church. And it was incredible. There were almost 5,000 people there. And one of the things that struck me was people from 67 different nations. It's incredible when you're interacting with guys who are serving as, all of whom are serving as pastors in six, from 67 different countries all over the world. In fact, even Saudi Arabia was represented, which I was a little surprised by that but countries from all over the world. So I'm grateful for uh, the church giving me the opportunity to, to go to that. And the theme was We Preach Christ. And so it was in celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so all of the sermons, every day was packed with sermons, and all of the sermons were about the glory of Christ. Uh, from everything from John 1, 1 to 3, the Word. Uh, and then later in that chapter, the Word became flesh to the Good Shepherd, to Paul himself saying, we preach Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and all the glories of Christ, Colossians 1:15 and following, so many different passages, those are just the ones that come to mind now, but it really was a feast on Christ, and it's my hope, really, that as a church, we here always are feasting on Christ, that we as a church preach Christ, not just from the pulpit, but also in every gospel community group. In every kind of men's theology and women's theology, in every conversation that we are speaking Christ to one another, his majesty, his redeeming love, his righteousness imputed to us freely apart from our works, that we are always about this Christ and this glorious gospel. So uh, at this point in the life of our church, we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, as you see from these posters throughout here. So if you're visiting with us this morning, that is where you have found yourself in the middle of a study of the Sermon on the Mount. And we've spent the last several weeks now going through the first major passage in the Sermon on the Mount, which is called the Beatitudes. And that's Matthew 5, verses 3 to 12, a very well-known, familiar passage. But, you know, in talking with people, it's funny because this passage actually is, is less familiar to, to many than one might think. And so perhaps this is your first encounter with the Beatitudes, these, these characteristics of those who belong to Christ, who belong to Christ's kingdom. Uh, or maybe these are, are something that you have been reading since you were a child. But hopefully, my prayer is that we've, we've been able to really unearth what Christ meant as he walked through each of these. Blessed are they, blessed are they, and so forth. If the Sermon on the Mount as a whole is a description of life as it is lived in the kingdom of heaven or in the kingdom of God with Christ himself as king, if that's what the Sermon on the Mount as a whole is about, the Beatitudes is a description of those who by God's grace live in this kingdom or who inhabit this kingdom. It is a description of its citizens. And so if you go ahead and put that first slide up, 
what we have been talking about as we've gone through the Beatitudes are the characteristics of citizens. And so far, we've seen a number of characteristics. The seven that we've looked at so far as we've covered the first seven Beatitudes, we've seen the emptiness. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are empty, who have nothing to draw from, who realize that apart from Christ's mercy, apart from God's grace, they are nothing. And then blessed are those who mourn. We've seen the tears, the lowliness. Blessed are the meek. We've seen the longing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The extending out of the mercy we've received to other people with the extending. Blessed are the merciful. And then we've seen the pure in heart, the sincerity in verse 8. And then in verse 9, we've seen blessed are the peacemakers. We've seen the reconciling. And so today, in our third and final sermon on this passage, the Beatitudes, we come to the eighth Beatitude, which we find in verse 10, and then this is expanded or intensified in the two following verses, in verses 11 through 12, and it is the suffering. And more specifically, this is the suffering of persecution. In a recent article by Christianity Today, it was noted how the 2017 World Watch List published by Open Doors, and this is a ministry that kind of tracks persecution as it is going on throughout the world. And Open Doors called 2016 the worst year yet for Christian persecution. The worst year yet. In fact, persecution has increased in the world since about 2014, but 2015 was worse than 2014, and 2016 was worse than 2015. And these are some of the major things reported. They say that approximately 215 million Christians experience high, very high, or extreme persecution. For India in particular, which is only ranked 15th in the world, as you think about the the 50 most dangerous, worst nations to live in if you are a Christian, India is ranked 15th. North Korea is number one. So you see there's, there's quite a difference there. But even in India, number 15, of the 64 million Christians in India, approximately 39 million experience direct persecution. Over half of those Christians in India, where, where Christianity has been for a long time. The total number of persecution incidents in the top 50 most dangerous countries increased, revealing the persecution of Christians worldwide as a rising trend. This is happening more and more every year. And we've seen this in our own country in the ways in which society and the cultural elites of our society and our government is continually pressing in on Christianity, pressing in on Christians or marginalizing Christian voices, Christian ideals. So how do we account for this? What is going on in the world that Christianity is persecuted in this increasing way. How do we explain it? And I think we go to Matthew 5, 10 to 12, and we find there an answer for why it is the case that we see this in our world. So let's look there. Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12. 
So this is the eighth beatitude, which started in verse three. Verse 10 says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray as we end the Beatitudes and I hope that you've been edified by our time in the Beatitudes as we end this this time. Uh, And as we come to the last of it today, my prayer is that not only will the Lord use what we look at today, but even that he'll bring to your mind all that we've studied in these Beatitudes and press that in on your soul and bring conviction and healing and transformation for all of us. Let's pray for God's help because without that, we have nothing. Our Father, we thank you for your word. God, your word through which you transform us and sanctify us. We thank you that this book is not the words of men, but it is the very word of God. It is your word. It is perfect. It is holy. It is inerrant and infallible. It is God's holy word. And we are, we're thankful, God, that we get to have it and read it and how we take it for granted. How we take it for granted, would you forgive us for that, Father, individually and as a church? We pray today that as we look at these verses at the end of the Beatitudes, God, that you would mercifully and graciously apply this to our hearts. And God, that you would exalt Christ in our minds, that you would give us an excitement and a joy to live out this Christian life that you've called us to, even the persecution that you have called us to. Father, would you help us? to live out this citizenship that has been given to us as a mercy that begins now and that will be realized forever more and more as we are conformed to Christ's image in this life and then glorified in the life to come. God, we anticipate that day when we will stand before you blameless and spotless without wrinkle or anything and we will be perfectly in Christ's likeness. We look forward to that, Father. And we pray today that you will apply this passage to each heart as needed so that we can grow in that Christ-likeness. Thank you for this time together, Lord. We thank you for the brotherly love that we see in in this place, in this church, among these people. And God, we ask that you will increase our faith, our hope, and our love as we follow you. Thank you for the time we have today. Bless this time in your word. Help us, Lord. Help us to understand it. Help me to preach it and help us all to apply it, not to be just hearers, but to be doers also, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So what does Jesus have to say about persecution in this passage? And I think there are four things to see. If you'll go ahead and put up the next slide, Thomas. Four things to see. I think we have another one. There we go. So four things to see about persecution as Jesus unpacks that here. The first is the certainty of persecution, the certainty of it. Secondly, the cause of persecution. Then the character of persecution and the consolation of persecution. So first, let's look at the certainty of it. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. All of 10, the first part of verse 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, 
and then I won't read the rest at this time. There are three major observations that I think that we can make that show us that persecution for Christians or persecution for citizens of this kingdom is an inevitable, certain thing. First, being persecuted is a mark or a characteristic of citizenship, just like all of the others. So remember when we started this little series on the Beatitudes, the first, one of the first points that was made in that first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, is as we come to the rest of that, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The way we are to take that is theirs and only theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it is in the very nature of a Christian, of a citizen of this kingdom to be poor in spirit. In other words, you cannot be a citizen of this kingdom unless you are poor in spirit. And that is the very way that we come to Christ. And for all of us here who have been regenerated, who've been converted, we know that as we entered into this life as a Christian, we were brought low. We were humbled. We were convicted of our sin. We came to a realization that we have absolutely nothing to draw from within ourselves and that we are entirely dependent on Christ's grace and his mercy. And that's where we entered into the Christian life. And so we know that being poor in spirit is essential to being a Christian. It is in the very nature of a Christian to be poor in spirit. But that doesn't stop there. It goes for all of the Beatitudes. It is in the very nature of a Christian to be meek, to be merciful, to be a peacemaker. And we talked about how Christians have been shown mercy. They extend mercy. It's a very natural thing. A vertical reception of mercy then ends in an extension of that to other people. This is the same with peace. We've been put at peace with God, reconciled to God vertically, and then we become peacemakers, those who seek reconciliation horizontally. So when we come to this final beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We are meant to understand that it is in the very nature of a Christian to be persecuted. Do you see that? It is in the very nature of a Christian to undergo this kind of treatment. A second reason we know that persecution is certain and inevitable is as we see in verse 11, it is not a matter of if, but when. Blessed are you when. Not if you are persecuted, you may be persecuted, you may or may not. It really depends on where you live. No, it really depends on what part of the world you happen to live in. No, it depends on your socioeconomic status. No, blessed are you, citizen of this kingdom. Blessed are you, disciple of mine, the master, the king, the Christ. Blessed are you when, Jesus says. And thirdly, the lifestyle depicted in the preceding verses is entirely countercultural and invites the world's hatred. It goes all the way back to the idea of us being poor in spirit. At the very beginning of these Beatitudes is a person who has renounced self. This is a person who has renounced self-centeredness, selfish ambition, a person who's renounced self-reliance and self-righteousness and all of those things because they have found themselves empty before God and they've reached up to God for everything that they could ever have. 
And so death to self stands at the very beginning of all of these beatitudes. That's the exact, that's the exact opposite of our world. Our world is entirely self-driven. We also see in these beatitudes that encompassing all of them is this idea of loving righteousness. And we find that in the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are told that those in the world who do not know God hate God, hate his law, therefore hate righteousness. And so for those who not only like righteousness or or kind of love righteousness, no, no, but those who pant, long, hunger, thirst for this thing, righteousness, are those who are going to be very, very much at odds with our world. And here's what happens. These things, these beatitudes, when lived out or evidenced by a Christian, let me tell you what they do. They condemn the world. They condemn those who do not know this God, who do not hunger for this righteousness, who do not have this poverty of spirit, who depend not upon God, but upon themselves. One commentator puts it this way. Your life, Christian, hear this. Your life serves as a silent indictment of the sinful lifestyle of others. It incites resentment and inspires mistreatment. Your very existence is loathsome to a world that hates God. Understand that. That is what it means to be a Christian in the world. That is the reason for any of those persecution statistics that we read, and that is the reason we suffer. And it all goes back to this. It all goes back to what we find in John 3, verse 20, where it says this. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Who is the light? Jesus, the light of the world. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. And here's why. Lest his works should be exposed. In the very next passage that we will come to, we will be told that we are the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world, and we will be told that we, those who contain him within us, those who have his life in us, are also a light in the world. And that very light is loathsome to those who live in darkness because our lives are moving about, are exhibiting these attributes of Christ, which we find in the Beatitudes. This very thing itself indicts, convicts, condemns those who live in darkness. John MacArthur puts it this way, those who faithfully live according to the first seven Beatitudes are guaranteed at some point to experience the eighth. The first seven, all of those which we've looked at so far, those evidences of Christ's life in us, bring about this persecution from the darkness. And we see this certainty. 
or this inevitability of persecution in various places throughout the New Testament. I mean, I could give you a long list of passages in the New Testament that talk about the inevitability of persecution for Christians, but probably the most explicit is in 2 Timothy 3.12, and it just says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. Persecuted. So a couple of questions for us, I think, that we have to answer. The first one is this. Christian, why are you surprised? Why are you surprised when people close to you, uh, very close to you, and even extending beyond that, and ev- people in your life, why are you surprised when they mistreat you? You should expect it. This is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. Let me say it this way. This is one of your characteristic features, In the world, just as you are empty within yourself and just as you show mercy and seek peace, you are one who will be persecuted. Why are we so surprised? And we see this even in our culture as as we get so upset when the government begins to press in on Christians, when Christian schools are attacked and other uh, institutions other Christian institutions and organizations are cracked down upon. We, we begin to get so fussed about that as though something strange is happening. This is what it means to live in the world. We've been living in an illusion in this country that we're exempt somehow from this. It's every Christian in every place is an alien, a stranger, a pilgrim. This is why Peter says, 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter would say, it would be strange if you were not mistreated. It would be strange if you were not persecuted. A second question I think we should consider is do you deep down inside think that there is a way around all of this? And I think sometimes we subtly do this inside of our hearts and our minds, especially those of us who live in this country. We begin to think a little bit like this. If I'm nice enough, maybe casual enough about my faith, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Nice enough, casual enough, or just cool enough. As much as much like sort of popular culture as we can get. We sort of fill that mold, fit into that mold as best that we can in every respect. If I'm nice enough, casual enough, and cool enough about everything, it will all go away. It will be fine. I don't think any of us say that. I don't think any of us starts out to say, uh, we're gonna find a way around this, but we do that in our very actions. We do that in the way that we live out the Christian life. See, the problem is that they hate your Christ. They will always hate your Christ. And if he is your Christ, they will hate you. That's what we're told in the Bible. There is no way around that. It is who we are. We are citizens of this kingdom. And that brings us to the next point that Jesus makes about persecution, and that is the cause of of persecution. Look at verses 10 and 11. Again, I'm going to read all of these, uh, both of these verses fully at this point. Verse 10 again. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus is clear here about the cause of or the reason for persecution. What does he say? It is for righteousness sake. And then he goes on to unpack that a little bit, you know, in case maybe at that point you're, it's a little vague, it's a little general. What is righteousness? He goes on to say very specifically in verse 11, on my account. Why are Christians persecuted? What is the cause of the persecution of which Jesus speaks in this passage? It is for the sake of righteousness. It is for the sake of the name of Christ. Matthew 10, says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Nobody wants to be hated. That's who we are. Hated by all for my name's sake. John 15, 18 to 20, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It didn't start out hating you. In fact, if I wouldn't have come, it would love you because you'd still be of the world. It has hated me. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. You'd be right there with the world. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, praise God for his grace and mercy that Christ came for his bride and he chose us out of the world, that we would be distinct and different. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. We suffer as Christians because of Christ. The world hated him first and because it hates him, it hates those who belong to him, those who bear his name. So this tells us that the blessing or the beatitude, as we talk about blessed are those who are persecuted, that this blessing or this beatitude mentioned here is not to be associated with some general kind of persecution. You know, the truth is that people are persecuted all over the world for all sorts of things. People are persecuted because they, they stand for a particular cause or because they belong to a particular ethnicity or because they belong to a particular religious minority or because they, uh, they have a certain amount of income or they have particular political ideas. People are persecuted all over the world in horrendous ways. This is not a general blessing upon anyone who would suffer at the hands of oppressors. That's not what we have here at all. It is not associated with persecution in general or persecution for some cause or persecution for doing wrong. You know, you get in trouble and you're just, I'm bearing underneath it. No, it's what you deserve. You break the law, you receive the consequence for it. It's not talking about that either. This is persecution that comes specifically because one belongs to and reflects the character of Jesus. Bearing his name, and living out his life invites persecution. It, it brings persecution on. So what does this imply for us? 
I think the first thing this implies is that this is not persecution for being rude, obnoxious, uncooperative, or insubordinate religious types, right? We've got, we see this in our world. We see this a lot, and we even are inclined sometimes towards this kind of behavior. We see Christians doing this in the public square. We see Christians who, who have certain convictions who do this in very unhealthy ways. We are not persecuted for being this way. In fact, this is what the New Testament, this is what the scriptures tell, tell us how we ought to act towards those who are in the world. 1 Peter 3.15, always being prepared to make a defense. So we want to defend our faith. We want to, to argue the truth of our faith claims. But then what does it say? With gentleness and respect. These aren't Christians who are out there just pushing and shoving and, and throwing down the, uh, the judgment on this person and that person. No, we're, we're to do all of this, it says, with gentleness and respect. This is how we are to relate to an unbelieving world. Titus 3, 2, which we looked at just here recently, we are to show perfect courtesy to all people. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. This is not an obnoxious Christian walking around just being annoying to everyone who does not accept his or her faith. This is not what we're talking about at all. That kind of person is not being persecuted for righteousness sake. If he or she is persecu being persecuted, that person is, be that person is being persecuted because they're annoying. They're being obnoxious. They're being rude. They're not being courteous. Not because of the Lord Jesus. That's not what this is about. And then 1 Peter 4, 15, let none of you suffer as an evildoer. Not suffering because you've gone out here. You know, in Romans 13, Paul talks about how Christians are to uh, obey the government. Christians are to submit to the government. We see this also in Peter. This tells us that if, if Christians are not submitting to the government and then are, be, are receiving repercussions, that is not persecution for righteousness sake. That is not persecution for Christ. That is persecution for everything I just said, for something else. Now, of course, this is different if the government is asking us to do things that are against Christ. And it is because of Christ, on account of our faith in Christ, that we are saying we cannot do that. That is different. That is being persecuted for Christ. This also tells us that we are not to go looking for persecution. Christians are not to be those who just throw themselves out there into the world and want people to mistreat them. Yeah, mistreat me, mistreat me, because that, you know, that makes me feel like a super Christian. That, that's happened. That happens in the church. People get out there and they, they, go, they do these radical things in, the, in a certain way so as to bring the reproach of the outside world, looking for mistreatment, looking for persecution. That is not at all what we are to do. That's why Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It should always be the desire of every Christian, wherever he or she goes, to make peace and to be courteous and gentle, loving, kind. So what is the nature or essence of this persecution that kingdom citizens will face. And that leads to our third point this morning, the character of persecutions. We've seen the certainty of persecution. It will happen. It's inevitable. The cause of persecution, Christ. Christ. And now the character of persecution. Look at verse 11. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Here Jesus describes the various forms that persecution may take, and he lists reviling, persecuting. And this idea of persecuting has the idea of pursuing, running out of town, taking hold of. All, all of these ideas are kind of coming out of this, of this word to persecute, but to persecute or to pursue, and then speaking evil. In other words, what we have here is verbal abuse, physical abuse, and reputation abuse. These are the sorts of things that Christians should expect to happen to them in the world. Do not be surprised when you are verbally abused by the world. Do not be surprised when you are physically abused by the world. Do not be surprised when your name is run in the mud by the world. These are the kinds of things that happen to citizens of this kingdom, to followers of this Christ. And one of the things that it's very important to see is that each of these forms of persecution happened specifically to the Lord Jesus. Christ was abused verbally, Matthew 27, 39. And those who passed by derided him. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him. I have never been able to get over that string of events in the passion narrative specifically of Matthew's gospel. Specifically the way that Jesus is treated when the Roman guards take him out and they flog him and they put a crown of thorns on him and they hit him on the head and they come down and they act as though they're, they're, they're giving him homage as a king and they smack him and they hit him with that rod on his head. And then he's taken out and everyone is reviling him. Everyone is casting reproach upon him. Everyone, even the two guys who aren't busy enough dying to look over at Jesus and say, oh, you're disgusting, essentially. This is the abuse that our Lord Jesus received while he is dying on the cross. And he received this throughout his life a man of many sorrows, acquainted with grief, constantly reviled. Who are we to think, those who belong to this perfect Christ, that we will just float through life popular and happy and comfortable and at ease and will never receive any reviling or rebuking or reproach? That's foolish. It's blasphemous even. Christ was verbally Abused. Christ was abused physically, as we know, as I just described. Matthew 26 and 27, he was arrested and tried. They spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him and they called for his execution and they crucified him. They beat him. They pulled the hair out of his chin. They pulled out his beard. Christ received all of this. He was brought before rulers and condemned to die naked on a tree. He was abused physically. Christ was abused in terms of his reputations. In terms of his reputation, Luke 7, 34, he is called a glutton and a drunkard 
and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is the way that they referred to Jesus. And then we find in John chapter 10, verse 20, they say that Jesus has a demon and is insane. So this is what the religious leaders are going around saying about Jesus. What if people said about you, is it that bad? Is it that bad? People are walking around saying that guy, that Jesus has a demon inside of him and he's insane. He's a drunkard. He's a glutton. He's a bad man. He's a wicked sinner. That's what they were saying about Jesus. What do you think they will say about us? These, all of these things are things which kingdom citizens face in various ways and to varying degrees at this very moment There are people in our world who bear the name of our Lord who are suffering in these ways right now, today, as we meet here. And we are called to suffer in these same ways. And as I said before, to varying degrees, we live our lives for Christ where he's placed us faithfully, not looking for persecution, living at peace with all, showing perfect gentleness and courtesy. And when it comes... We embrace it. When it comes, we are not surprised. We understand that it comes because we belong to Christ. It comes from family members. It comes from friends. It comes from coworkers. And sometimes it is very, very painful. So how should we respond? How should we respond to this kind of treatment? And that leads to our final point this morning, the consolation Of persecution. And that's verse 12. Let's look at verse 12. As we finish up the Beatitudes, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I don't think that anyone would consider persecution a positive thing, and rightly so. No one should glorify persecution in and of itself. No one. It is a horrible thing. If you've ever experienced any significant persecution, you know that. If you've read stories of those who've been persecuted and the family members of those who've been persecuted, family members who've been forced to watch other family members persecuted, if you've read any of that or you've seen any of that or you've known any of it yourself, you know it is a horrible thing, not something to be intrinsically glorified. It is emotionally, physically, and socially painful and even excruciating. And no one would associate joy and gladness with being harassed, attacked, and abused. No one. It is evil. And God will repay all of it, all of it in judgment. And in fact, we're told that in the scriptures, that that's the reason we don't repay evil for evil. That's the reason that we don't attack our persecutors. That's the reason why we don't vindicate ourselves When others revile us or slander us, we entrust ourselves to God who is the just judge. And every deed, every thought, every word will have to be accounted for on that day when Christ returns. Every person will have to stand before God and give an account for everything they have done. 
And I wanna make this point too, this is very important. We need to understand this morning that apart from Christ, everything you've ever done, every sin you've ever committed, you would be judged for before God forever. Everything, every single, single, tiny sin against an infinite, holy, glorious creator God would be judged eternally in hell apart from Christ. Christ endured hell for us so that we would not have to. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we sing these hymns, these songs. That's why we believe these words. And that's why we will image the gospel when we do the Lord's Supper is because Christ became sin for us. He took the wrath of God upon himself in our place. That's the good news. And so if you've never trusted in that good news, if you've never believed that, maybe you're kind of a cultural Christian, maybe you're a moral Christian, that's not a Christian. A Christian is someone who has trusted in this truth that God put our sins, those who trust in Jesus, on Christ. He paid for them on the cross. He removed them. He nailed our sins to the cross so that in him we become the righteousness of God. Our sins are removed. Our sins are forgiven. We will spend eternity with God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Our sins will not be counted against us. We will never have to give an account in judgment for our sins in that way. Every person will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but we will never have to be judged for our sins because Christ has removed them. And for those who, in an evil way, persecute Christians, for those who kill God's people, they will give an account on the day of judgment for this. And I will say this too. For those who revile in even the slightest way and reproach in even the slightest way God's people who aren't believers, those who aren't believers who do this will give an account for all of that before God as one who persecuted Christ. Remember what Jesus said to Saul, to Paul, as Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was a persecutor of Christians and he never got past it. He never forgot the fact that he was the least of all the apostles because he was a vile, murderous man. He killed Christ's people. And though he was the one who brought the light of the gospel to the Gentiles and did far more than any of the other apostles in the name of Christ and gave his own life for Christ, I can't help but to believe that as his head is about to be severed from his body in the 60s, under Nero, in Rome, that he still understood, I am the least of the apostles. I am a vile sinner. I killed Christ's people. He never, ever forgot that, but God saved him. And God, we pray, will save all of those who persecute Christians. And that's the reason Jesus will tell us later, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who revile you, who persecute you, as Christ did as he was being crucified. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As Stephen did, as he is being put to death in Acts 7. But as evil as this persecution is, as horrible as this persecution is, for the citizen of this kingdom, for the Christian who bears the name of his or her Christ, it is not only something to be endured, persecution, endure it, it's not just that, nor is it just something to be embraced. You endure it and you embrace it. No, 
even more. It is something to be celebrated. That's incredible. That, that is inconceivable. That is so countercultural. That makes no sense to someone who doesn't know the Lord. Someone who does not have this perspective on life, it makes zero sense. Not just embraced, but celebrated. The two words for rejoicing make this emphatic at the beginning of verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. And the second word translated be glad means to be exceedingly joyful or overjoyed, even associated with leaping for joy. This is the response of the Christian. And this is exactly what we see illustrated for us in the New Testament and even subsequently by Christ and by his followers. So we see it with Jesus. You remember those words in Hebrews 12 too. What does it say? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Even Christ himself knew that the father was gonna exalt him to his right hand and that he would, be, that he would inherit an, a multitude of nations, that he would bring people to God as Peter says. And so for the joy set before him, he saw through the cross, he saw over the cross, and he, Jesus, rejoiced. Even on Golgotha, he rejoiced. Even as he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? Even then, he rejoiced. We see this with the apostles. I love this story. After being arrested and beaten in Acts 5, 41, it says that they left the presence of the council. Listen to this. Left the presence of the council and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. These guys are skipping and hopping down the street and they've just been beaten. Their backs are all torn up. They're bleeding and they're skipping and hopping down the street because they've been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. This is incredible. Paul and Silas in jail in Philippi in Acts 16. I remember as a child in picture Bible, seeing this story, Paul and Silas, they have their, they have their feet, you know, in these uh, clasped uh, together in these, in these chains, in these stocks. And it says there in Acts 16, and you have to read all of the language to kind of get the weight of this. It says that they were given many blows. They were inflicted. Many blows were inflicted upon them with rods. They were thrown into the inner prison. This is a solitary confinement. This is the kind of where the rats and the roaches and, the, and, and, and everything else you can imagine that would be awful about being in those conditions. They were put into the inner prison. Their feet were placed in stocks. And what was their response? They were praying and singing hymns to God. That's incredible. Kent Hughes describes a Romanian pastor who was imprisoned in solitary confinement and tortured by having chunks of his flesh cut out with a knife. And this is what he says in describing that. Yet, in the midst of this sadism, this evil, evil violence, there were times when the joy of Christ so overcame him that he would pull himself up and shuffle about the cell in holy dance. I don't even know what that means or what that looks like, but that's what he would do in holy dance. So remarkable was his joy that on his release from prison and his return to his home, he chose to fast the first day in memorial to the joy that he experienced in prison. Wow, that's Christ. 
That's the spirit of God in us who gives us joy, the fruit of the spirit. I love the story of Thomas Hawks who was persecuted for his faith. He was tied to a pole and there were uh, things placed around his feet, uh, logs and other kinds of debris placed around his feet and he was set on fire. But before he was burned at the stake, he had talked with some brothers in the Lord. He had talked with some fellow Christians. And he told them that what he would do as he was being burned alive is that he would, he would lift up his hands if he were able to so that they would know that the flames had not been unbearable to him, that he, was, that he could endure it with Christ's strength. So he was being burned and the flames were coming up around him. And just as it was thought that maybe he had, he had fallen the way it's described, he, had, he, had, he had was about to die. And the way it was described, it was as though it came to his mind that he had promised those brothers that he would do what he said. And he lifted up his hands and he clapped three times with joy as he was being burned to death at the stake. Christ. We rejoice. We rejoice in these sufferings, even those, even those Read what's happened to Christians in Iraq and other places. Read those accounts. They are atrocious, horrific. They are unsettling. They stay in your mind for days. And so maybe you don't want to read them. They're horrible. But Christ calls his people to this. And he calls his people to eternal glory. And this is why we rejoice. Our faith and our identity in Christ are authenticated by the persecution we experience. And here's what I mean. Just as the world persecuted Christ, the world will persecute Christ in us. And when the world persecutes us, we know we belong to him. Our faith, our love for him is authenticated. It is not that we earn anything by persecution. You don't earn a higher standing with God because you're persecuted. Going to the flames and enduring it doesn't earn anyone's salvation, no one. But rather, it is that in being persecuted for righteousness sake, for Christ's sake, we demonstrate ourselves to be real Christians. We really do belong to him and that's why the world hates us. We really do belong to him and that's why they revile us and persecute us and speak all kinds of evil against us. We're told in these verses that we rejoice because our reward is great and it is heavenly. And I love what Paul says in Romans 8, 18. He says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, read Paul's sufferings in 2 Corinthians. Everything that the apostle Paul endured for 30 or so years, all that he suffered and he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is what awaits us. Notice here, just as there are three things, there's reviling and there's persecution and there's slander before. Notice what we have here. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. This is not just a reward, it is a great reward. And it is not just a great reward as we would understand riches and honor and everything else in this world. It is a heavenly reward, which means it is imperishable. It is unending. It is pure and perfect and powerful. And it is capable 
to sustain us for eternity. And then finally, we are told that we are not alone. We belong, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, to a long line of people that go all the way back to Abel. Remember Jesus says, from righteous Abel, Adam and Eve's son, who was murdered by his brother, Cain. Why did Cain kill Abel? For the same reason the world kills us. Because Cain looked in his wickedness over at his brother and the holiness of his brother's sacrifice to God and the, the purity of heart that God had given him, that holiness of life, and he hated his brother. He hated him because the world represented by Cain hates light and loves darkness and sin. We are part of a long line of those who have suffered for righteousness sake. We're not alone. Read Hebrews 11, hall of faith as people call it. All of those people who suffered for righteousness sake. I wanna give two closing thoughts this morning before we pray. The first is this, this beatitude offers a heavy challenge. We all need to hear this very clearly. Where there is no persecution, there is a good chance there is no Christ. Where there is no persecution, there may be no Christ. If you're easing along, sailing along, no troubles from the world, maybe it's because you don't have Christ. Because where he goes, persecution follows. And secondly, as we finish, we must not pursue popularity. And I think this goes especially, you know, the men I respect, preachers I respect, those I read, are not the men who are so popular with the world. Not the men who Time Magazine celebrates or CNN has on and all these little morning coffee shows have on and they have nice little chats. Those are not the kind of guys that I'm really wanting to follow that I'm really wanting to listen to and learn from and grow from because we hear this in Luke 6, 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you. Woe to you. When the world loves you, there's a problem. When everyone speaks so highly of you, there is a problem because the world did not speak highly of your Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for this challenge. We praise you for this comfort. God, help us to bear our faith, not in an obnoxious way, but in a conspicuous way. Lord, help us not be hidden Christians. As we will see in the, follow, in the following passage, help us be those who are salt and who are light, who do not hide our light, but let it shine before men God, it will bring glory to you, but it will also bring persecution and heat. God, help us to endure it, to embrace it, and even to celebrate it. Help us to rejoice and be glad, knowing that our reward is great in heaven and that we are like those prophets of old who were sown in half, we are told even in Hebrews 11, who were killed, Jeremiah, thrown in a pit, they were not popular men. They were hated men, just like our Christ, just like his prophet who came before him, John the Baptist, who prepared the way for him, who was beheaded and killed. 
so too were the apostles, and so too have many of your people been killed and reviled and slandered. Lord, help us to embrace this life and not be afraid. Help us trust you and live this life for your glory before a world who so desperately needs you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.